Today's read from the Broader File, Volume 2, Survival Strategies for Africans in America, 13 Steps to Freedom by Anthony T. Browder. The media are incredibly powerful tools that influence society both positively and negatively. During this century, the media have merged, emerged, as one of the most effective means of mass communications and manipulation. They mold public opinion, influence social behavior, and play a critical role in determining how people see themselves and how they see others. Television, radio, and the press are extraordinarily powerful because through suggestion, they can direct the subconscious minds of their audiences to do the bidding of programmers and publishers. In the hands of racists, these are powerful weapons that have been used to affect the perceptions of reality of both African Americans and other people in society through the manipulation of images and information. Negative images and Racial stereotypes, for example, are so commonplace that they are often accepted as legitimate reflections of black life by people who have never met African Americans. To this end, you must examine all aspects of the media carefully, assess what is being offered, determine what is useful, and consciously discard everything else. This may not be an easy task, but once you become aware of the manipulative nature of the media, you will be able to defend yourself against it. Step two, become aware of the power of the media. During my early career as a graphic artist and designer, I worked at advertising agencies in Chicago, Illinois and Rosslyn, Virginia. In later years, I have had business dealings with owners, management, and staff of numerous radio and television stations and publishing houses in Illinois, Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. I have seen advertising and marketing campaigns developed from conception and design to implementation. I have always been intrigued by the interaction of the members of the various creative teams. What fascinated me most throughout this process was that I had an inside scoop on new products and advertisements for them months before they were introduced to the general public. It was an empowering feeling that generated a sense of tremendous self-worth. Most creative teams comprise producers, writers, artists, photographers, art directors, photography directors, editorialists, and a host of technicians who work in concert to sell their ideas to the public. These professionals are responsible for determining every element that is incorporated into any product or advertisement that will ultimately be seen and used by millions of people worldwide. Theirs is a stressful, highly competitive field where loyalties and job security are seldom guaranteed. Creative teams are hired to develop and implement the marketing and advertising ideas of management, and if they don't produce satisfactorily, they are replaced in the bat of an eye. 
I can say with absolute certainty that everything the public sees and hears has been carefully crafted by minds who are experts in their respective fields. Advertising is a multi-billion dollar industry and marketing research is constantly upgraded to ensure that the advertisements hit their mark. There is minimum tolerance of error in a profession that invests millions of dollars per project and expects profits of 400% or more. As one would expect, there are few accidents or coincidences in this business. If an advertising agency creates a campaign that is particularly successful, the ads will lead to a spate of imitations by competing agencies. There is little originality or shame in a field that thrives on success at any expense. If this industry also happens to be racist, then white supremacist elements within it will surface in the advertisements created by some and duplicated by others. A careful study of images that have made their way into the American media reveals a pattern of distorted portrayals of African Americans. Sometimes the degree of racial white supremacist insensitivity is so blatant that it evokes an immediate reaction, but in many instances, the level of racism is almost imperceptible. It is there, but it is subtle and insidious and requires the cultivation of a critical eye for viewers to understand what they are seeing and how it affects them. The following examples illustrate my point. Analyze them carefully and note the latent images that spring to mind. During the week of June 27th, shortly after the arrest of O.J. Simpson, both Time and Newsweek featured photographs of Simpson on their front covers. Newsweek used the unretouched Los Angeles Police Department mugshot that ran in dozens of newspapers throughout the country. Time used the same photograph, but electronically doctored the image and, according to some, darkened Simpson's face in order to create a more menacing image of a black man. The stubble on Simpson's face was enhanced, and the police identification numbers at the bottom of the picture were reduced so as not to compete with the magazine's headline, An American Tragedy. There was an immediate public and media reaction to Time's sinister portrayal of O.J. Simpson. The national criticism was so overwhelming that Jim Gaines, managing editor of Time, issued an apology in the July 4th issue. It should be said, I wish it went without saying, that no racial implication was intended by Time or by the artist. One could argue that it is racist to say that blacker is more sinister and some African Americans have taken that position in the course of this dispute, but that does not excuse insensitivity. To the extent that this caused offense to anyone, I deeply regret it. With that apology, the issue was dropped, and a lesson was learned, or so it appeared. Over the years, I have observed that whenever racist images in the media are publicly challenged, those responsible for creating the images will deny any racial intent. 
and issue a very generic apology. To this end, Mr. Gaines' response was quite typical of the dominant mindset that runs rampant in American society. The following is the following examples further validate my point. In September 1993, AT&T published some 300,000 copies of the company magazine Focus and distributed copies to their employees worldwide. The publication contained an illustration that portrayed various people in different continents using telephone equipment that was manufactured by AT&T. The illustration depicted Caucasians in North and South America, Northern and Central Europe, all communicating by way of the telephone. However, on the continents of Africa, instead of depicting a Caucasian or African, the artist drew a gorilla chatting gleefully on the phone. Needless to say, African-American employees of AT&T were livid when they saw this humiliating and offensive portrayal of Africans in their company newsletter. They registered their complaints with the corporate offices of AT&T and demanded some form of retribution for those responsible for publishing the illustration. AT&T justice took the form of an apology issued by Marilyn Laurie, senior vice president of public relations who said she was appalled and personally deeply sorry about the racist illustration. The editors of Focus also issued an apology to people of color for an illustration that perpetuates racial stereotypes. They claimed the illustration was a slip up in the review process between initial sketch and final artwork. While the editors of Focus claimed no personal responsibility for the presence of the illustration, a decision was made to sever all relationships with the freelance artist who drew it. In his defense, the artist countered by saying that he frequently uses gorillas as a trademark in his drawings and that he had no intention to hurt anyone. In the final analysis, neither the editors nor staff at Focus saw anything wrong with the characterization of Africans as gorillas. By their own admission, no one caught the slip-up during the review process because no one was sensitive to the feelings of Africans or their African-American counterparts. I believe their inability to see Africans as human beings was a manifestation of their subconscious thoughts of white superiority and black inferiority. Anyone with an ounce of compassion should have been offended at the sight of seeing a gorilla representing the people of a nation, but when the management of Focus was forced to account for their actions, they responded by one, denying reality, two, issuing a pitiful public apology, and three, offering the illustrator to the African-American employees as a sacrificial lamb. A similar incident received national attention four months later when the African-American community was publicly humiliated by a major organization, the Indiana State Medical Association, ISMA. In January 1994, the ISMA distributed 7,000 invitations 
for its annual legislative reception to its physician members, their guests, and members of the Indiana State Legislature. The invitations included three items, an outer envelope showing the image of a half-naked African with a bone in his nose holding a machete. The invitation which contained an illustration of a monkey eating a banana with the theme of the reception, Jungle Fever, written in bold letters above its head and an RSVP card imprinted with an image of two Europeans dressed in safari gear being cooked alive in a cauldron. Needless to say, African-American physicians and state representatives were outraged when they received their invitations. They lodged numerous complaints against the ISMA for their stereotypical misrepresentation of Africa and African people. They were offended by the portrayal of Africans as cannibals, the reference to Africa as a jungle, and the use of the term jungle fever, which is a disparaging reference to interracial relationships. The unexpected response to the invitations prompted Mike Abrams, director of the ISMA, to cancel the reception and issue a public apology to the African-American community. Abrams stated, this is a terrible mistake. I never thought this would be offensive to anyone. It certainly appears to me that the ISMA, which had no African-Americans among its staff of 28, suffers from the same disorder that causes most people of European ancestry to regard themselves as superior to people of African descent. In some respects, people who are quote-unquote unaware of their racist, white supremacist leanings are more dangerous than those who are open and honest with their vile expressions of hate. At least you know where they stand. Racial insensitivity runs rampant in the minds of people who work in the media, in many institutions and corporations throughout the United States. Traditionally, European Americans become aware of their racist, white supremacist views only after an offense has been committed and it has been brought to their attention by the offended parties. In most instances, an apology is quickly issued, followed by a denial of any racist intent. However, if these individuals and institutions did not harbor ill thoughts, these incidents would not occur with such frequency. These expressions come from deep within the psyche and are an indication of a sickness that has festered within the souls of Europeans for hundreds of years. If we examine America's response to the acquittal of O.J. Simpson in October 1995, we find two distinct responses to the verdict fairly evenly split among racial lines. While many African Americans were delighted at the sight of a black man receiving justice from the criminal injustice system, many European Americans were outraged by a perceived miscarriage of justice. In the weeks that followed, the media played up the apparent perceptual differences between African and European Americans as if the divided consciousness 
of the society were a new phenomenon and not the consequence of a historical reality that has existed for centuries and continues to play itself out with increasing regularity. Some striking examples of the perceptual differences between African and European Americans can be found in their interpretations of the same subject. On June 10, 1991, two nationally syndicated publications featured cover stories of the lead actors in Spike Lee's film Jungle Fever. One was a European-centered magazine, Newsweek, and the other was a Negro-centered magazine, Jet. The differences between the photographs on the two magazine covers reflect the perceptual differences held by most African and European Americans. The Newsweek cover portrayed the Italian-American actress Annabella Ciora in a photograph in which she dominates her co-star Wesley Snipes, the African-American actor. Snipes' head is shown resting on Ciora's shoulder and her hand is placed on his shoulder in a manner that suggests she may be uncomfortable by his presence. This perception is heightened by the fact that neither actor is smiling and written in large letters near their heads are the words tackling a taboo. One can also infer that the secondary headline in the Newsweek masthead, Small Cities, Big Crimes, America's New Murder Capitals, is not so subtle attempt, is a not so subtle attempt to associate the image of the black man on the cover with those responsible for the increasing number of homicides in America, thus providing further justification for those who believe that such racial mixing is taboo. This same couple is portrayed on the cover of Jet in a warm embrace and smiling. The photograph shows Wesley Snipes noticeably taller than his co-star. A further comparison reveals another striking difference between the two photos. On the Newsweek cover, Mr. Snipes' face is considerably darker and Miss Ciora's is noticeably lighter than their respective images on the Jet cover. The earring Snipes wears in his left ear on the Newsweek photo is noticeably absent in the Jet photo and even though Snipes is dressed in the typical Euro-American uniform, a suit and tie, his presence is still considered undesirable to European Americans. An analysis of the two pictures helps to explain the differences between them and the unspoken intentions of each publisher. In most photographs, height denotes power, influence, and superiority. Since males are traditionally taller than females, it is assumed that they are more powerful and superior to them. This is just an assumption which has no basis in reality, but is justifiable in a gender-based society. The jet cover portrays the typical image of a male and a female. The Newsweek cover portrays the unspoken racial and sexual hierarchy that prevails. In America, the pecking order in the hierarchy is European male, European female, African female, and African male. If you were to look at the two magazine covers individually, these subtle differences would probably go unnoticed. However, 
when you compare them side by side, the subtle differences become quite apparent and somewhat shocking. As you become more aware of the pervasiveness of racism in the media, you will become less shocked and outraged by what you see. You can't hide from the expansive presence of the media, but once you understand how they influence your behavior, you will become better prepared to insulate yourself and your family from their negative effects. We must be mindful of the fact that every image we see on television or film or online, every publication that we read and every sound we hear on CD, cassette or radio has been carefully crafted by specialists and is designed to elicit a specific response from the audience. African Americans must be particularly aware of the negative images of us that have been manufactured in the media over the years. Such media manipulation continues today. Its effects can be controlled by acknowledging its existence and learning to neutralize the negative influences it projects. African Americans can learn how to hold the media accountable for their actions by examining the actions of other groups who claim to have been offended by the media. In June 1992, President Bush and Vice President Quayle publicly criticized Time Warner for its distribution of the song Cop Killer, which was written and performed by rap artist Ice-T. This song, which glorified killing the police, ignited a storm of protest by members of Congress and numerous police groups. By July 28th, Time Warner succumbed to the pressure exerted on the company and removed the song from future sales of Ice-T's album. This was one instance where discussion of First Amendment rights was superseded by unyielding pressure. In April 1996, both MTV and VH1 pulled Michael Jackson's video, They Don't Care About Us, from their playlist because of lingering concerns over two words that were deemed anti-Semitic. During that same month, Marlon Brando was publicly condemned and later apologized for having made remarks on Larry King Live that were also considered anti-Semitic. Do politicians, police officers, and Jewish leaders know something about the power of the media that African Americans have yet to realize? Perhaps they understand that disparaging comments made in jest, whether in the lyrics of a song or a conversation, have a potentially lingering effect and must be neutralized before they become ingrained in the consciousness of the society. If you examine the image of Africans and African Americans in the media, you will find that we are more often than not portrayed as savages, clowns, criminals, and social derelicts. Is this an accurate portrayal? Or is this how others wish to see us? Why is there no consistent public outcry among African-American politicians, clergy, business, 
and community leaders. Have we accepted these images as a true reflection of our worth as a people? Or do we foolishly believe that television, movies, and music have no lasting effects on our lives? In reality, television, film, and radio are powerful electronic forces that saturate the mind and body with sights and sounds that influence psychological, emotional, and spiritual well-being. It therefore becomes extremely important that we balance our viewing and listening habits with sounds, words, and images which soothe our souls and add to our collective worth. Recommended activities. 1. Try reading all printed materials through the eyes of the writer, publisher, or art director. Keep in mind that the sentence structure, layout, photographs, and illustrations are all designed to elicit a specific response within you. By becoming aware of these facts, you can monitor how you are being affected by the material and determine the extent to which you wish to be influenced. 2. Apply the same critical approach to television, film, and music as suggested in the activity above. After you've spent several weeks fine-tuning your eyes and ears to the messages in the media, begin to designate certain hours of the day or days of the week when you will avoid the media altogether. What can you do to fill the void? You can be silent and learn to communicate with your inner self. You can hold meaningful conversations with friends and family members. By the time you have finished reading this book, you will realize that you have many options available to you. Three, the final activity allows you to assume greater control over the media at your disposal. You begin by setting aside time during the day when you will read, view, or listen to materials that you know will enhance your mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. Once you've begun to identify materials that enhance your self-worth, it will become easier to create the environment that best supports your overall development. The benefits you receive from such activities will become noticeable within a matter of days. Your thinking will become clearer and your mind more focused. References and suggested readings. Author Norman Cohen, Jeff and Solomon. Title Through the Media Looking Glass, Decoding Bias and Blather <laughs> in the News. Monroe M.E. Common Courage Press, 1995. Author William Barlow and Jeanette L. Dates. Title Split Image, African Americans in the Mass Media, Washington, D.C., Howard University Press, 1991. Author Patricia A. Turner. Title Ceramic Uncles and Celluloid Mammies, Black Images and Their Influence on Culture, New York Anchor Books, 1994.